Hello, everybody. I, my name is Helena Cronin. I'm a co-director of LSE's Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, uh, which is hosting this particular event. A big welcome to all of you, and also a very, very warm welcome to our speaker, Professor Mark Pagel. Mark, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. I'm glad that you feel like that because it's in particular a personal pleasure for me to have Mark here. I originally met Mark very early in his career, which we've just been talking about. When at that time, he was rapidly becoming a world expert on the comparative method in biology. Now, this method uses statistical methods to answer questions about the evolutionary history of the world's wondrously diverse living things. For example, how did species become big-brained, or how did they become meat-eaters? And the method tests hypotheses very powerfully and very, very rigorously. And because of that, I developed an enormous admiration for Mark's work. Between then, some time ago, and now, Marx brought very sharp analytic methods to many intriguing questions from, for example, why has our species lost our body hair, to why don't newborn babies look like their fathers? By the way, in case you want to know, Marx's answers are, respectively, one, the certainty of parasites, and two, the uncertainty of paternity. In recognition of Marx's contribution to evolutionary thought, he was last year awarded the greatest honor that his scientific peers could bestow. He was made a fellow of the Royal Society, which is um, a wonderful thing to have happened. And his book, he is now here at the Literary Festival to discuss his latest contribution, Wired for Culture, and that has the irresistibly uplifting subtitle, The Natural History of Human Cooperation. So our program today will be as follows. Mark will talk for about 35 to 40 minutes, and then questions from all of you for about the same time period, and we'll finish by 12.30. And after that, Mark will be outside, just right outside the lecture theater, and he'll be signing copies of his book, which will be for sale. Uh, for those of you who would like to know, the Twitter hashtag for this event is LSE Lit Fest. This event is being recorded, and if there are no technical difficulties, a podcast will soon be available online. The title of Mark's talk is Wired for Culture, a talk, Professor Pagel, FRS, that I now invite you to deliver. Well, th thank you very much, everyone, for coming, and thank you, Helena, for that very lovely introduction. I, I promise not to scare you with any statistical or mathematical models today, especially this early in the morning. Um, again, thank you all for coming. Thanks to the LSE uh, for hosting this. It's really uplifting to come into London, where um, it's such a happening place, and people will show up on a Saturday morning rather than going to Camden Market and buying your vegetables. Um, all right, I'm going to pose the question today, um, what makes us human? And it's a convenient 
question for me to pose because the answer turns out to be the title of my book, uh, that we're wired for culture. And I'll try to explain that now in my talk. But the reason I pose the question, the more serious reason I pose the question that way, is that I think ever since Darwin's Origin of Species, about 150 years ago now, the answer to that question has been sought in our evolutionary history, our shared evolutionary history, with the other animals. And so increasingly, as we learn more about genetics, you're told that you have this or that gene in common with some other animal. And, and most recently, in the last 10 years or so, you're constantly reminded that you are identical to about 98.5% in the sequences of your genes with a chimpanzee. And so I want to suggest to you today that we're not just jumped up chimpanzees, uh, far from it, and that the answer will really lie in studying our responses to culture. And in particular, what I want to suggest is that human beings are unique in being distinguished by having a suite of psychological, emotional, and social instincts that we have evolved in response to a long evolutionary history of living in small tribal societies. And those tribal societies I think we all recognize as our cultures. And those cultures, we'll, we'll see, I hope, in this, in this talk, those cultures have sculpted us, body and soul. And the reason is, is that they are responsible for our unparalleled adaptability and prosperity around the world. And our responses to that adaptability and prosperity is that sculpting that I will, I will refer to. And in particular, we'll see not only changes in morphology, but we'll see that our cultures have created in us a very peculiar sort of dual psychology, a sort of dual moral psychology in which we can be in an unsurpassed way in the animal kingdom, kind and cooperative and generous, and yet we all know that we can equally harbor sort of crude and violent instincts. And the, the, the trick in understanding humans is realizing that both of those sides of us inhere in all of us and can be united as strategies we have evolved to advance our tribal societies around the world and our genes. And so culture will turn out to be a sort of ruthlessly evolved structure for promoting our genes. Okay, now that's a lot to start with. It's a pretty intense way to start. So let's slow down a little bit. And I said that we're not just jumped up chimpanzees and I'm gonna show you why. Now let's have a look at um, our nearest living genetic relative, the chimpanzee. And everybody says they're really intelligent because they use sticks to get termites out of the ground and they use rocks to crack open nuts. But what I want to say to you is that if they really were intelligent, they'd be using a shovel to get the termites out of the ground and they'd be going to the shop, maybe Camden Market, to buy their nuts that somebody else had laboriously cracked open with a rock or something a bit better than that. But they don't do that, do they? This is what they do. So I suggest that they're not as intelligent as we think they are, because if they really were, they'd be more like us. So what's the difference? Well, we look at them and we say, oh, aren't they wonderful because they do these behaviors. But in fact, what they lack is any real exact imitation or copying in these behaviors. And so it's not the case that one chimpanzee watches another one and says, oh, that's a good idea. I'll put that stick in the ground and get termites, or I'll crack open those nuts with a rock. Rather, it seems to be the case that rather than specific imitation or copying, what the chimpanzees are doing is having their attention drawn to sticks and rocks, which are things they manipulate anyway. They're very manipulative with their hands. 
And just by a, a, a process of trial and error, they learn that they can retrieve termites out of the ground, or they can crack open a nut with a rock. But it's not the case that they were specifically imitating that behavior as a way of getting termites or as a way of getting rocks or getting, uh, getting nuts. And so I'm going to say to you something really rather arrogant, which is that we could go away for a million years, come back, and those chimpanzees would behaving, be behaving exactly like that. And we know that because they're not, what they're doing every generation is recreating their culture rather than inheriting their culture from somebody else who's already figured out how to crack open nuts or to get termites out of the ground. Now, how can I make such an arrogant statement so full of hubris about the chimpanzees, showing them such disrespect? Well, because this is exactly what our ancestors, the Homo erectus, did. We can follow the Homo erectus for two million years through the fossil record. Now, Homo erectus is on the left there. It was an upright ape that evolved on the African savanna about two million years ago. They made these beautiful hand axes that fit just beautifully into your hand, and you can see they'd be useful for lots of things. And we accord to them a great deal of intelligence for doing that. But if we follow those hand axes on the left there through the fossil record for about two million years of strata, in Africa, we can follow those hand axes. They didn't change. They made the same hand axe over and over and over and over again. That is, for something like 40 to 60,000 generations of parents and offspring, they made the same hand axe over and over and over again. It's as if each generation of Homo erectus was having to recreate their culture from scratch. They didn't inherit the idea of making a hand axe and, oh, I'll improve on that and make a better one. They made the same one over and over and over again. Now, that rather charming looking guy on the right is some artist's impression of what Neanderthals looked like. I doubt they were even that attractive. Um, <laughs> they lived in Eurasia for about, so around here and, and, and right across Eurasia for about 300,000 years. They probably arose something like five or 600,000 years ago. <laughs> And then they had lived in Eurasia for about 300,000 years. We now are told that we, have, we are identical to them in over 99% of our, our, our gene sequences. We are identical to them. And we attribute to them great intelligence, and we attribute to them language and other cognitive skills. But in fact, if you look at the Neanderthals, you look at their toolkit there, sure enough, their toolkit is more diverse than Homo erectus, who preceded them. It's more diverse, but that same toolkit was made over and over and over again for 300,000 years. It barely changed. Now, this does not sound like an animal to me that is learning from its ancestors and thinking about how they might improve on things. And so what we see in these other animals is a lack of what we might think of as a very difficult idea to, to define, but we can talk about it perhaps in questions more what we might define as something called social learning. The humans, on the other hand, seem to be capable of directly learning new and novel behaviors from other people and improving upon them. And here's how we, we know that. So, I mean, it's, if, we, if we have this old adage, monkey see, monkey do, um, really, it's mostly the case that monkey see, monkey cannot do. But, but we are different, and the difference is this, that if you follow our toolkit, through the fossil record. Sure enough, a long time ago when we arose, we were making hand axes over there on the left. But after a while, our hand axes evolved into something else. We were still making hand axes, but somebody had the bright idea of sticking a shaped stick onto a hand axe, and you had the first hafted axe, didn't you? 
what we might call a tomahawk or something like that. And then later on in evolution, in our cultural evolution, that gave way to that thing there, you know, it looks like a Swiss army knife, but it's even better, it's a hammer and so on. And all of you carry around those iPhones now. The difference is that our cultures cumulatively evolve. We have what's known as cumulative cultural adaptation because our species invented a new form of evolution that has created an unbridgeable gap in the evolutionary potential between us and all other animals. And that new form of evolution is idea evolution. We are able to look at an object, understand why that object is made, what it is for, and think about how to combine the ideas that built it with other ideas and improve upon it. So we retain the best exemplars in every generation. We throw out the bad ones. And that's evolution by natural selection, isn't it? But your minds are the selective agents. And so the difference between us and all other species is that our cultures have been now being transmitted down the generations so that every generation now isn't rediscovering how to make a hand axe or fish termites from the ground. It's inheriting this cumulatively evolved set of information that isn't passed in our genes, but is passed from mind to mind. And so this cumulative cultural adaptation really distinguishes humans from all other animals. We are not jumped up chimpanzees, we're not jumped up Homo erectus, and we're not jumped up Neanderthals. Okay, so what really distinguishes our species is this event that happened sometime very, very early in our evolution. And before I pinpoint that event, I'll call it the capacity for culture. Let's just have a look at all other species. Now this, this graph here is the what we can call the descent of the Homo lineage. So we're Homo sapiens and those are called humans, and all the other species that were called Homo, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthal, and so on, are also humans. They're just earlier versions of us. And what I want you to see there is that the width of those little blobs that they're moving up through time, the width of those little blobs is their geographic range of that species. And so if you, you can see there on the right, if you can't read it, it says Homo erectus on the right, that blob that's going up. And it's coming up almost to the present. Homo erectus might have lived up until 50, 35,000 years ago even. But what I want you to see there is that Homo erectus and all of those other animals, the widths of their blob, which is showing you their geographic range, is showing you that they are confined to a part of the world that their genes adapt them to. And that's true of every other species on Earth. Every other species on Earth is found in the regions, the environments that their genes adapt them to because they don't adapt at the cultural level. But look what happens when humans come along. So humans are at the top there, and there's virtually a mushroom cloud. And you could use that metaphor more exactly than you think, because you might think we have actually been like a nuclear bomb dropped on the Earth. There's this mushroom cloud. We expand out and fill up every environment on Earth. And how is it that we did that? Well, right here, I would argue, right very early in the evolution of modern humans, this mysterious, but we can study it behaviorally, capacity for culture evolved. We had the ability to evolve at the level of our ideas. Our cultures accumulated knowledge and wisdom and technology and skills, which we passed on almost like genetic information, but mind to mind. And so our species uniquely was able to adapt to every environment on Earth. So whereas all other species are confined to the environments their genes adapt them to, We've been able, you might say, to adapt all of the environments on Earth to us by building the right technologies or shelters or clothing or um, implements for acquiring food and so on. All right. 
So this is the human capacity for culture, and it's, and it's forever altered the course of our evolution, as I'll show you, and obviously the course of evolution of the world, because everything around you in your sort of bustling and teeming everyday lives, everything in this auditorium is the result of cumulative cultural adaptation, such that none of you in this room has even the, even the, 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 the tiniest clue how almost everything around you in your everyday life is made. You don't even know how those pens and pencils were made that you are using. None of you has a clue how to make a pencil, even, or a shoe, much less an iPhone. And you've inherited all that. Just as you don't understand the information in your genes, you don't understand the information in your culture, you've simply inherited it. Now, once humans evolved this ability to adapt at the level of ideas, as I say, they, they just exploded and spread out around the world, occupying every environment on Earth. And when they did so, they did so in a rather curious way. And this will be a little bit of a digression, but we'll try to marry it up when we come back. So here, here's a plot of the world showing the, um, the, 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 the extant 7,000 or so human languages spoken on Earth. So there's 7,000 different living human languages. And we can roughly call these 7,000 little red dots around the world various human cultures or tribes. Now, what I want you to see there is that there, these, these red dots seem to be really densely um, collected in, in areas where, where humans are found in high numbers. And so you might think to yourself, it's just obvious that as we spread out around the world, as we diverged geographically, we would evolve different cultures and we would evolve different languages. But the real irony about humans, and it tells us something fundamental about our psychology that we'll get to, is that the greatest diversity of cultural groups and languages is found where people are most closely packed together. We seem to have a predilection for forming into small tribal societies that exclude others from those societies to such a degree that we evolve different languages, even where we live right next door. Now, you might find it hard to, to believe that from this slide, but let's have a look at the island of Papua New Guinea. There, I said there are 7,000 languages spoken on Earth today. 800 to 1,000 of those languages are spoken on that little island of Papua New Guinea, an island about the size of the American state of Texas. And so if we have a look at that island, there it is. 800 to 1,000 distinct human languages on that, on that little island. And what I want to call your attention to is if we go to the northeast coastal region of Papua New Guinea, we can see that there are regions of that part of Papua New Guinea where a different human language corresponding to a different human tribe and society is spoken every couple of miles. And so I'll wander over here. Have a look in here. The, these, these represent four, five, six miles or so uh, between separate language groups. Each one, each one of these is a separate language group. Now, when I first learned about this, I was completely incredulous, as you were probably all sitting there thinking, this guy's just pulling the wool over our eyes. This doesn't, doesn't really happen this way. I was completely incredulous, and I met a Papuan man, not that, that guy up in the right-hand corner there, but he was a little bit like that guy. I met a Papuan man, and I said to him, can it really be true that the, that the language groups are that closely packed together that every few miles you encounter another one. And he said, oh no, they're far closer together than that. And you think I'm having you on? Have a look here. Have a look here, where is it? Look at here, look at here. There's three languages right there. That's about a mile. <laughs> now, this is astonishing and it tells us something really fundamental about our species. And again, if you think this is just Papua New Guinea, let's go to the um, archipelago of Vanuatu 
Here's the island of Gawa, I think it's pronounced. Gawa is just one of the islands in Vanuatu, and many of you will know that Vanuatu is probably the first country that's going to be a casualty of global warming. It's going to go under water. But here's Gawa. It's um, one of the islands in Vanuatu. It's, it's, a, it's a not extinct volcano. It's, it's still a volcano that's going. And on this island, which is um, 12 miles in diameter, most of it is uninhabitable because it's this volcano. But in those jungles down there, five distinct human languages are still spoken. Five different tribal societies live in, in that region. Okay, so humans, once we acquired culture, we had this new evolving entity, this, this heritable entity of ideas and wisdom and knowledge and skills. We used it to go around the world, subduing the world's environments to meet our needs, and we did it in these small tribal societies that have this slightly alarming, disturbing predilection to divide up the world and exclude others. And let me just show you what the outcome of some of that was, because what I like to say is that these distinct human tribal societies are in many ways playing the same ecological role and evolutionary role in the history of the world as distinct biological species. Now let me quickly jump in and say all human groups are the same species. We can all happily interbreed and we, there is not a shred of evidence that any human society has cognitive or intellectual skills that are superior to any other. But our cultures dragged us around the world, adapting at the cultural level to different environments in much the same way I want you to see as different biological species have, except that they are different species, whereas we are a single species. But I like to think of these different human cultural groups as cultural species. Now, I said that culture had sculpted us body and soul. I haven't told you about the soul yet, but let's look at the body. Because our cultures, we walked out of Africa probably something like 60,000 years ago. And as that slide I showed you uh, demonstrated, we rapidly um, inhabited most of the world. And let's just start with that Dinka tribesman on the upper right there. The Dinka are um, pastoralists. They herd, um, um, I think it's cattle, I think they herd. I can't really remember it's goats or cattle. And they live in one of the hottest, driest places on Earth, in the Sahel. And it was their culture that got them there and taught them how to herd animals and stuff. That isn't the way we evolved. We evolved as hunter-gatherers, but these people have evolved a culture of herding animals. That Dinka man who grows up in this um, very desolate region of the world where he can't go down to Sainsbury's and buy um, lots of food to eat and so on, he has an average height of six feet. He's got a spaghetti-like body that is evolved to shed heat because he lives in one of the hottest, driest regions of the world. Now, his culture took him there, and then his genes responded to the fact that here was this population of people living in this hot, dry region of the world, and he developed this tall, skinny body shape for getting rid of body heat. Now, let's go to the, the opposite. There's that Inuit man up there. When Inuits walked into the Arctic, so Eskimos we used to call them, but the Inuit tribes people of the Arctic, when Inuits walked into the Arctic, it was their cultures that had figured out how to kill animals and use their skins to make clothing and so on, and make igloos to live in. So you're you know, making a house out of ice, a very weird thing, but making a house out of ice and so on. And again, this is knowledge and wisdom and skills and technology passed down the generations. But when those people got there, there was strong natural selection on their genes to become spheroid in shape. So Inuits are not six feet tall and spaghetti-like, but they're quite a bit shorter and squat. And spheroid, why? To retain heat, obviously. 
right? And so here, our cultures got us there, but then our cultures, you might say, sculpted our bodies by setting us up for natural selection to favor certain shapes over others. That lady in the middle there, the Tibetan high altitude, about 25,000 years ago, human hunter-gatherers got to above 12,000 feet in the Tibetan plateau. There's no oxygen up there. Most of us would be feeling very ill, nauseous, wanting to be sick above 12,000 feet. But the Tibetans, once they got there, their culture took them there and figured out how to make those baskets and things and told them what they could eat. This was culturally acquired skills. Once they got there, their bodies responded at the genetic level, and those Tibetans all carry a gene that confers them an ability to, 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 to hang on to what little oxygen there is in the air far better than most of us would probably do so that they can live at that altitude. So there you have it. Um, our cultures got us there and created what I would really argue are sort of culturally distinct species almost in that we really do differ in our bodies physiologically and genetically in that we've adapted to those regions that we've, we've gone into. Okay, now, that's the part about sculpting us uh, in body. We haven't got onto the soul yet. We'll get to that now, and that'll be quite fun. But just in your minds now, just compare these three. Do I have three there? Oh, there's some Polynesians sailing out into the middle of Oceania, and they acquired unbelievable skills at navigation. But we don't have to go on about that. Okay, so here's these biological species. They're all stuck where they are, but a single species went around the world by creating what I would argue are cultural species. And I like to think of our cultural species as little cultural survival vehicles because those tribes that I showed you that are so closely packed in everywhere around the world, they're little vehicles that we live inside of and that carry relevant knowledge and skills and wisdom that allow us to survive and prosper. Okay, so culture obviously became um, a bandwagon worth jumping on. And it became a bandwagon worth protecting. And one of the things I want you to realize is a very subtle idea, but I want you to realize is that once you can learn from other people by watching them and imitating them, and once we had language by talking to them, you can steal their best ideas. And I call this visual theft. We're the only species that can do it. The chimpanzees don't do it. That's why they continue to crack open nuts as they have for a million years. The Homo erectus, I don't think, did it. Neanderthals didn't do it. But we have social learning, which I like to call visual theft. Well, what that means is that if you are a Dinka or you're an Inuit or you're, a, you're living in a Tibetan plateau and you've got this highly evolved culture and you live in this tribal group, you know the people next door can steal your best ideas just by looking at you because they understand what you're doing. And so you can see that there has been then, from very early in our history, we needed to evolve a psychology for protecting our groups because our groups carried that information that was so valuable to our prosperity and survival and reproductive success. We had to acquire a psychology for promoting the people who were within our groups and for competing with the people who were outside our groups because Throughout our history, human groups have been in almost constant perpetual conflict with other tribal groups seeking to occupy the same lands and resources as them. I mean, you saw how we just quickly spread out around the world, so we would have constantly been in competition with others seeking to do the same as us. And so we have evolved a very peculiar tribal psychology. As I said, it's this dual psychology that on the one hand is associated with great altruism and cooperation, and on another you'll, you'll see in a moment with this ability to, to, be, to be violent and crudely so, and we'll see it's all a psychology we've evolved to protect our cultural groups. So we know, for example, that humans 
are weirdly and oddly group focused. And I want you, when I show you these signs, I want you to think of the tribal group you might have evolved in and how you're somehow identifying with that group and protecting that group. So we're weirdly group focused. We're very happy to put on silly matching shirts and go to a sporting event as if to say, I belong to this group and all of my mates belong to this group. And this is our tribal identity coming out. Now, if we did this in any other context, we'd be labeled as peculiar and odd. But we do this in this context of one group standing up and trumpeting its tribal identity. So we have this odd group focus. It goes so far as we'll even paint our faces in the colors of our national flag. And in some sense, I can, you can see here that the person is almost becoming fused with their tribal identity. It's difficult to distinguish that person from his tribal identity, this strange psychology we have. Chimpanzees, horses, anteaters don't do this, okay? But we do. Now you just take this for granted, and you're all sitting here saying, yeah, I've seen people doing that. It's bizarre, no other animal does it. And this is part of our tribal psychology of trumpeting the group that we're a part of and evolved psychology for working with and coordinating our activities with others in our tribal group because that's been the focus and unit of our reproductive success throughout our evolutionary history. Now one of the things I want you to bear in mind as we're going through these slides is that there are some other animals on earth that behave this way. They don't paint their faces but they have this profound tribal identity and that's what we call the social insects the ants, the bees, and the wasps, and so on. They do behave in these oddly, peculiarly group-focused ways. Bear that in mind, because we have to run all the way to the social insects in evolution, not chimpanzees, to find other behaviors that are like our own. Okay, so we're oddly group-focused. We are capable of sublime acts of coordination in our behavior. Now, realize that human tribal societies are cooperative societies in which Somebody is out fetching water or, or, or mending the hut while somebody else is out finding the animals to kill and eat. And at the end of the day, we share the shelters, we share the water, and we share the, the food. And so we're capable of these sublime acts of coordination. Now you might be saying to yourself, yeah, I've watched the BBC and I've watched Attenborough showing us these dolphins swimming in circles and isn't that a wonderful sublime act of coordination? And they swim in circles and they round up all these fish and then they eat them. That's all they can do. That's all they can do. It's been hardwired into their genes. We can make up these sublime acts of coordination, new and novel ones, and we can make up ones that are appropriate to whatever event we're interested in. So that's the novelty in our behavior. All right, sublime acts of coordination, and we get great joy from group activity, especially when it involves vanquishing a foe. Now, this is a deep part of our psychology. Okay, we're charitable in a way that's unsurpassed in the rest of the animal kingdom. We give money away. Now, money in our society is directly related to your survival and prosperity, and yet you're willing to give away that which is most closely relinked to your survival and prosperity. So we are altruistic and charitable and generous beyond belief, with the possible exception, again, of the social insects. So here's somebody giving money away to someone they don't know, they'll never see again, and they don't expect to have that charity reciprocated. We hold doors for people. We give up our seats on trains. Um, just the other night, going home on the train, I dropped a big file and about 200 pieces of paper 
went all over the floor of the train and three people got up and said, oh, can I help you pick that up? And I thought, no other species would do that, but we do it <laughs> automatically. Now, maybe it's my advancing years. They thought this feeble old man, I got to help him. But no, I think it was that they just wanted to be helpful. So we do these things. And it's weird and bizarre that we do it. And going out of here today, you will hold doors for people, all of you. You'll do this. We're even so helpful, it's so hardwired into our instincts to be helpful that we will save the lives of other species. So here's a crazy man who, you probably saw this on the BBC a couple of weeks ago when we had that cold snap and the River Stour in Essex froze over. And this man stripped down to his pants and he crawled out on the ice to save that dog. That's not his daughter or his son, that's a dog, okay? It's not his offspring. What's he doing? He's risking his life. Now, I thought this was a publicity stunt for David Beckham's new pants. Um, so I got this enlargement. And I don't know, maybe if somebody has his pants, you can tell us whether those are his new pants. I don't think they were. I think the guy's just mad. He was risking his life to say, and he did. He fell in. He fell in. Um, but thankfully, uh, that ridiculous stunt, um, he survived. And so did his dog. You'll all say, oh, isn't that nice? Okay, but that, that's just a bit whimsy. Um, we might risk our health and well-being for someone else by donating a kidney. Um, again, extraordinary things we do, but of course, even more poignant than that, we risk our lives in war for our tribe or cultural group. We might even give up our life for an idea as that monk over there on the right. That's a famous picture from Vietnam, I think in the early 1960s, this self-immolation. But these are the bizarre acts of social acts that our species does, and they're all very tribally focused, aren't they? Now, that's the good side. We are, as I say, generous and kind and cooperative, and, and we're altruistic, and we even risk our own lives. But the nasty side is, the flip side of our culture, is that we know we're wary of strangers. This is something we're all rather uncomfortable with, but we can't deny it. And the word, you know, migration is this word that is just so loaded that we, we politicians can't even say it, and yet it's on everybody's mind all the time. So we know we're wary of strangers and that we're xenophobic and parochial in our views. We know that when one of our soldiers dies in battle, we feel that loss keenly. But I put it to you that many of you don't feel it so keenly when the soldier from the other side dies in battle. And so this is something deep in our psychology that we can't say, oh, that just is something about you. It's something about all of us. And so this kind of scene is all too common in our lives, this kind of xenophobia and sense of hostility and anger towards people who are not in our tribal group. And we know it can even go so far that it seems that a switch can be thrown in our minds that we can treat people with extraordinary acts of violence just it, with a click of a switch, that someone can become subhuman in moral terms and we can kill them. Whereas that's not something we would do to somebody typically in our own society. And so here's again this famous picture, and I hope this is not disturbing to, to many of you, the famous picture on the left of this Vietnamese general who was in 1968, I believe, uh, he rounded up this guy that he claimed was a Viet Cong guerrilla, took him out in the street. In, in, in as much time as it's taken me to tell you this story, he rounded him up, grabbed him by the arm, took him out in the street, and on camera, 
live, pulled the pistol out of his belt, put it to the guy's head, fired the gun, and that's the guy's head exploding right there. That man is dying right there. He did this in an instant. And so we are capable of throwing this switch in our minds that we, when we think somebody threatens the integrity of our group, we're quite prepared to kill them. Now, you think again, oh, well, that was just a case of war. Well, here's our lovely city of London in 2008. This man right here is about to die. Why is that man about to die? That's in Sainsbury's in southwest London in 2008. Well, that man's about to die because the woman who's circled in red has shouted to her boyfriend, the man dressed in the dark clothes, has shouted to her boyfriend that that man with the white shirt on has jumped the queue to buy a packet of cigarettes. And the man dressed in the dark clothes walked up to the man who had jumped the queue, smacked him in the head so hard that he fell to the floor, cracked his head open, and died. So, you know, life is cheap in human societies when you violate the rules of our cooperative society. This is known as moralistic aggression. And all of you are thinking, nah, 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 it isn't me. But what, you know, have you ever honked your horn at somebody who jumped the queue getting onto the motorway? Or have you ever said, there's a queue here, there's a queue here, when you're waiting to buy your tickets for the train? We feel these, this sense of violence and anger and aggression towards people that we think are violating the rules of our sort of tribal societies. And that's because our tribal societies depend upon our cooperation to be successful. And yet they're full of people who aren't our relatives. And so we're constantly aware that they might be seeking to get some advantage on us. So that's why these emotions have evolved. Now, the terrible irony of this story, but it makes no difference to the story whatsoever, is that that guy hadn't jumped the queue. It was the wrong guy. He hadn't actually jumped the queue. So if you look at this picture really closely, this woman is pointing to somebody over here. The guy who jumped the queue is over here. This just shows you, though, that the anger that wells up in us blinds us to what's going on. We seek out the first person we can and kill them. Now, this is just uh, a side of our, of our psychology that has evolved to, as part of our protection of these tribal groups that we evolved in. Okay, so we've got these two sides. Which one wins? Well, thankfully, our cultures have also tamed us in, in a very peculiar way. Have a look at this picture here. Here's you know, 10,000 people, no more than a couple of inches from each other, all of them unrelated to each other, all of them getting along just fine, nobody knocking anybody over the head and stealing their wallet. What's going on here? All of you right now are behaving so well. You're sitting here quietly and politely, great manners, and nobody, as far as I can see, is stealing anybody's wallet. Why not? Um, well, it's part of our tribal instincts. We have learned that we have to behave, otherwise we might get smacked in the head from an act of moralistic aggression. Now, what I put to you is, and again, you're just all sitting here smugly saying, yeah, that's what we humans do, but imagine that was 10,000 baboons or 10,000 dogs, a species we've bred in our image. They wouldn't be behaving so well. So this, this tameness, this ability to live in a cooperative group and treat each other in a cooperative way is, is a, again, this looks like an ant colony, doesn't it, or a wasp's nest. Um, we're closer to the social instincts in our behavior. And so it seems like this, I think this is from Mumbai, around the world are becoming commonplace. Millions and zillions of people can live in a bustling place like London or Mumbai, never more than a few inches from each other, and somehow get along. Okay, so this then allows us to sort of wrap all this, this up, this story of our evolved nature. 
um, by saying that we now exist in a, in, a, in a sort of unprecedented time in history when there are people living in the Amazon rainforest who have never been contacted by Western society. They know that we exist because our silver insects fly over them. Our aeroplanes and our helicopters fly over them. They know we exist, but they haven't been contacted. And these are two very poignant pictures, if I have time, I haven't used too much time. This one appeared about three weeks ago in the newspaper. Um, the, the, there was a guy wandering through the Amazon rainforest with a huge telephoto lens on one of those pedestal things and saw these people and snapped their picture. And what I want to call your attention to there is that they knew he was there, even though he was a long way off. They knew he was there. These are people still living by their wits in the rainforest. They knew he was there. But this is one of these uncontacted tribes. I know a fellow who has studied some of these tribes when they first emerged from the rainforest. He says there's about 50 of them left. And those ones on the right, same thing. That was in the newspaper about three years ago. And those poor people, uh, a helicopter was flying over. And they came out and they started shooting their arrows at it. And they will just think that that is a large insect, an insect large enough that it can swallow humans. Because sometimes they can see the humans flying these, these things. OK, so we, we live in this strange time of life when there's people living like that. And then there's people living like you, you know, bunched up with your mobile telephones and all of the accoutrement of modern life. And so we're left wondering, what's going to happen with our world? We have this tribal mentality, this tribal psychology that we've seen is prone to parochialism and, and xenophobia and violence towards people who are outside of our groups. And yet we know that the biggest trend in the 21st century, apart from you know, global warming and running out of everything, the biggest demographic trend is going to be the mass migration of people from less salubrious parts of the world to parts of the world that are better off. And so how is this tribal psychology going to play out? Which side is going to win? And the reason I use this slide is to say to you that there's hope. There's hope. And this isn't just me being a Pollyanna optimist. There's hope because if nothing in our evolutionary past, nothing in our evolutionary past, and that's represented by those hunter-gatherers there, specifically prepared us for this, <coughs> sitting here, this is bizarre. This has never happened in the history of the world except for the last 50 years or so. If nothing in our evolutionary past specifically prepared us for this and those people there, everything I want you to see about the way culture works has prepared us for this. And that's that our cultures have selected for in us a psychology that allows us to cooperate with people who are unrelated to us so long as they play by the tribal rules of our societies. And we've seen that when you violate those rules, bad things can happen. And so when we look to the nature of our evolution over the last 80,000 years or so, I call this the 80,000-year triumph of cooperation, we've had these two dual sides of our nature, the cooperative side and the hostile parochial side that works for tribal competition. Which of those two sides has won? They both still obviously exist, but which has won? Well, it's simply undeniable that our history over the last 80,000 years has been a history of greater and greater and greater cooperation. It's simply undeniable and an increasing taming of the, of the human species. And the reason we can say that is, I probably can't read it here, but 
uh, 50 uh, or just more than 10,000 years ago, before we evolved agriculture, all humans lived as hunter-gatherers in little bands. Well, early in our evolution as modern humans, bands of bands formed into tribes, so, or, or tribes formed from bands of bands. Bands would get together and say, well, rather than fighting over this patch of land, why don't we cooperate over it? And they made tribes. And then tribes over longer periods, fairly recently in our history now, we're coming up to maybe 12, 15,000 years ago, tribes gave way to chieftains. So larger social units of unrelated people cooperating around a shared identity, a larger shared identity. So what I want you to see is this psychology that evolved for cooperating with unrelated people. This psychology is sort of scale-free. It can move from a band to a tribe to a chieftain. We're still all members of this same tribe in this chieftain. Chieftains, as many of you will know, you're probably better historians than me, gave way to city-states, you know, places like Katul Hayek in Turkey 10,000 years ago, or Jericho in modern-day Israel about 10,000 years ago. Um, they gave way to city-states. City-states gave way to nation-states. So these things that we live in now are really brand new, these things we call nations. And yet your identity easily balloons to saying, I'm English or I'm British, or even a supranational conglomeration of people like I'm a European, I'm part of the European Union, or the world united by something like the United Nations. And so our 80,000 year history, our last 80,000 years or so, has I think reassuringly been the history of increasing cooperation among people as our particular psychology allowed us to form these larger and larger groupings so long as they were glued together by shared values and beliefs and goals. And it's not to say this is easier, this is any glib solution to you know, solve the world's problems, because we see that every time we get a bigger entity, it wants to come apart. The United Kingdom at the moment is a very creaky ship that's wanting to come apart at the seams. And there's this, this struggle going on right now. The European Union is a very creaky ship wanting to come apart at the seams, and what's going to hold it together is the sense of a shared fate and shared identity. And so we'll bail out Greece if it's in everybody's interest to do so, but as soon as it fails to be, you could imagine one of these supranational entities like the EU letting that country go. And so I think our long-term success as a species is going to depend upon creating these kind of shared fates where if somebody suffers, we all suffer, Otherwise, the creakiness is going to go the opposite way, and we are going to come apart as our wonderful nation <laughs> seems like it's on the verge of doing. Okay, I'll stop there, and we can take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for a really splendid talk. It was just fascinating. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, now to questions from all of you, the audience. Uh, what I'll do, how many microphones have we got? Two microphones. So I'll keep a queue of a couple of people going so you can get the mics to them. Uh, would you like to put up your hand if you have a question? Let, we'll start with you, then we'll move on to you, and then after that to you. Thank you, a very uh, interesting talk. 80,000 years. Um, it would be a mere rounding error if we reset this 80 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 120 years ago. And yet, if we had 
been meeting here in 1914 or 1918 or 1943, if we're not, you know, going down to a bomb shelter, uh, we'll be wondering whether or not the end state of the 80,000 year history is one of cooperation or one of vastly uh, more uh, organized destruction. So that's a minor question. Uh, the, the more interesting one is um, if such a short period of time in the very long time periods that you're talking about uh, could produce this triumph, why isn't that the other species which had many more uh, blocks of time evolve something more than the mere generational tool reinvention every, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Should, should we take that second question? Oh. I, I, so do, do we understand the question, why is it that we've been able to evolve this cumulative cultural adaptation that the other species haven't been, especially as it's been so valuable for us? Everybody heard, heard that, that question. And it, 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 it's, it's the $64,000 question because Indeed, we did evolve it. We can see how powerful it is. And no other species has it. And for me to be able to say we've identified the gene or the structure in your brain that allows us to do that, nobody has a clue. But what we do know is this, that when we study humans as animals really, really carefully, we seem to have these two traits that no other animal has achieved. And one of them is this ability to do this kind of precise imitation and copying of new or novel behaviors. And the other is we seem to have what psychologists and anthropologists call a theory of mind. We seem to have this, the sense that somebody else is doing something for a reason and we think we understand what that reason is. Now, I can describe that to you behaviorally and, and, and psychologists and anthropologists can do all sorts of very, very sophisticated experiments with humans in which they can show that we have those capabilities and that even as a two or a three-year-old, our capabilities in those two realms exceed that of an adult great ape. But nobody has a clue what the genetic switch was. But what I want you to see is that we know the genetic switch that caused it was minuscule because we now know that we share something like 99.4% identity in the sequences of our genes with Neanderthals. And yet I would argue that they didn't have these two traits. They might have had them in a small amount, but not enough for that burst of cumulative cultural adaptation. So this is, this is the enormous mystery of, of humanity. And I know you all like for me to say we've found the gene, but what I want to suggest to you is that when we do find the gene, so what? I mean, that's like saying I found the nut that holds the wheel of my bicycle on. It holds the wheel of my bicycle on. So what? I found the gene. What we do know is that behaviorally we do it and no other species does. So I'll let you down at one level and saying I don't know what the gene is, nobody does. I don't know what the brain structure is, nobody does. But we know that we do it and we do it in a way. Now one further answer to your question is why has no other species acquired it? Well one possible reason that no other species closely related to us has acquired it is that if they did we would have killed them. And we almost certainly drove the Neanderthals extinct. Well we did whether we did it by actively killing them or simply out-competing them, nobody knows, but it's al almost certainly the case we did both. Um, if we're all yeah. subject to tribal identification and uh, we paint our faces uh, as football fans, um, don't we also, if we're academics, uh, 
dress up in our gowns uh, and mortarboards, don't we also have an identification with the uh, religious institution, if we have one, that we go to, or our precise neighborhood where we live, which we might defend to the death if we had to? In other words, do we not have lots of tribal identities that are either discrete or overlap, and we select which of them we have uh, at the appropriate moment. Y yes, indeed, and, and that's part of that. That's part of that scale-free mechanism I was referring to. I think what, what, I think what you're, you're telling us is that is that that psychology is, is is such a fundamental part of us that we find groups to join everywhere we go. Now, remember that we've always got to contrast our modern world with the world we evolved in. So this is the psychology of the world we evolved in where there weren't academic societies 50,000 years ago when we were hunter-gatherers and there weren't little community parish churches to go to and so on. But what you can see is that th these are manifestations of this deep part of our psychology to find like-minded people because when we think we have found them, we think that we can trust them with our shared you know, technology and wisdom and skills. And so I put it to you that that's why we as a species are so hyper-acutely aware of things that we think give away shared values. That's why we listen so carefully to accents, dialects, how people dress, how they behave, how they eat their food. We're constantly looking for clues of shared identity in our cultures. And everybody putting on their silly gowns, and I put my gown on too, you're just saying, look at me, I'm, I'm a member of the same tribe as you. It is just painting your face, you're exactly right. And, and after, after that person then over here, and any, any other questions? Yes, and one here after that. Okay. Um, Could you put up your hand? Sorry, Good. Okay. thing was me. Um, thanks very much for a wonderful talk. Uh, something that you said, um, slightly at odds, I would just ask you to clarify. You said at one point that our tribes existed to protect our secrets, our advantages, and that we, uh, in some sense, hoarded culture. But it seems that the history of the modern world is very much the story of promoting our cultures. And indeed, that's the story of encountering other tribes. We always bring and promote, here's the way that we music or whatever it is. You can see the way the culture spreads in that sense. And then latterly with the internet, you have a huge amount of kind of altruistic cooperation with people who are from completely non-distinct groups. So it seems, in some sense, the tribal idea and the modern idea are slightly at odds. How do you... Uh, depict those two, contrast and compare? Yeah, no, so it's a wonderful question. Everybody heard the, the question? Um, gentleman's point is there seems to be a lot of sharing going on. Um, yeah, no, in, in, indeed there is. I, uh, uh, by the same token, you know, you talk about downloading music and so on. Um, a lot of that's pretty highly protected, and, and when you don't download it in the quite right way, somebody comes and knocks on your door and raids your computer and drags you off to jail. But what I put to you is that we, we do share a lot now, and it's largely because we live in such pampered societies that we can afford to give away a lot of our quote-unquote technology. But by the same token, we have, we have patents, we have patent lawyers who are millionaires because they make so much money off of protecting ideas. We have business espionage. You know, when you're fired from your job at a, at, a, at, a, at a big business, they shuffle you out the door straight away. They don't let you empty your desk and take all the wisdom with you. So we still protect our, our, um, our knowledge, the knowledge that matters. We still protect it 
greatly. And I put it to you that if any of you has a favorite family recipe and you make your lovely cake and you take it to somebody's house and they say, oh, that's so delicious, could I have the recipe? You all think, oh, I don't really want to give that recipe away. So knowledge and innovation are really hard to come by, really hard to come by. And so I, I would agree with the gentleman that there's more sharing going on than ever. I tend to think most of it is stuff that is easy to share and the stuff that really matters we, st we still protect. That's why we've got MI5. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, the evolution of modern megacities in the last hundred years, like London, New York, LA, particularly yeah. multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural cities, and how um, this relatively new historic phenomenon has um, shaped tribal identities, the evolution of tribal identities. Um, I mean, earlier on you pointed to Papua New Guinea and said, you know, when there are great concentrations of people, there's a proliferation of different languages, and obviously that's largely not happening in modern megacities because we have a, a shared media, yeah. but what other processes um, have modern megacities uh, had on tribal evolution? Well, what, what I think is happening, what I think is happening, when the, with, and, and this is my point, is something that w when you, w when it twigs in your, your mind, I think you'll get a little smile on your face, which is this idea that our psychology is, is, is evolved to learn how to cooperate with people who are unrelated to us, other members of our tribe, so long as they are willing to sort of share our values and goals. Now that psychology, I use this term scale-free, that psychology isn't limited to 10 people or 25 people or 50 or 100 or 5,000. And so it's a, it's a psychology that, as I said, nothing in our past specifically prepared us for living in large cities, but everything about the way culture works does. And that's why we have large cities. It turns out that we can come together in large groupings so long as people live by an sort of agreed upon implicit set of rules. Now, I don't want to be glib, it isn't that easy. People die in London every day and we have police forces and so on. But by and large, given what we could be, the chaos that could ensue, it's extraordinary that we have this psychology that allows us to wander among millions of people and not knock them over the head or knife them or fail to hold the door open for them. And I think it is just that our psychology allows us to grow in, another, to grow in, in, in size. And another thing you should, you, and this gentleman's question over here about wearing mortar boards and things and going to the parish church, you can see that our psychology allows us to extend this notion of a culture, you know, a tribal group, from five people to 25 people to 50 people. So you might think of yourself as a Londoner, you might think of yourself as a Southern Englander, you might think of yourself as English, you might think of yourself as British, you might think of yourself as European, and these are all societies that you're psychology allows you to um, extend your identity to and you might be willing in some respects to behave in this cooperative altruistic way at each of those hierarchical levels as opposed to somebody outside of that group and so I like to often say to people part of being a member of the human race is that weird feeling you have when you're on holiday and you're surrounded by people that you can't talk to and they have funny customs and they eat funny food you're on holiday and all of a sudden you overhear an accent that's like yours. You say, oh, that's someone from home. And you walk up to them and you're willing to share and say, oh, isn't it wonderful? wonder what the weather's doing back in England. And all of a sudden they're your friend. You've never seen them before. So that's, that's the notion of, um, of our tribal psychology. And I, and I think it's very fortunate for us that it has 
extended to these large groupings, but I put it to you that it, you can look at it in a sort of anthropic way. We wouldn't have these large groupings if our psychology didn't allow it, and it does. Mm -hmm. Just, just before, uh, just take another. Okay, one here and one over there. After that. So, uh, if I got your point right, seems like the proliferation of languages plays the same role in cultural evolution that reproductive barriers do in biological evolution. So, as you pointed out at the evidence that the more tribes live closer, the more they fragmented their languages. Uh, do geographical barriers play the same role in cultural speciation as they do in biological speciation, or is there that like overcome, or they just play a minor role? So, what's your opinion about that? So, I think I think the gentleman's question is: Are there geographical? Uh, does geography play a role in cultural speciation? Yeah, I mean, just look across the channel. I mean, yeah. So why do tribes so close yeah. together, speciate so much? Yeah. This is a very, very good question. So why, why do we break up into these little groups, even when we could form one great, big, happy, cooperative society over all of Papua New Guinea? Well, I had this notion of the sort of minimum viable human group. Imagine that 50 people, choose any number, 200, 73, whatever you want, Imagine that number is sufficient for a kind of collective knowledge and wisdom and technology and skills. You know, you're good at making spears, I'm good at fetching water, somebody else is good at climbing trees. If there's some minimal, minimal viable population size, then it makes sense for us to split into that group and to compete with people next door because if we can vanquish them, our genes will occupy that territory and not theirs. And so I think this, this tendency to split into these small groups tells us that that, that is a, a driving feature of our nature, and it's probably driven by uh, genetic reproductive success. Now, it, 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 it isn't easy, because when you split into a smaller group, you're easily overrun by a larger group. So it's a risky thing to do. But the fact that we do it anyway suggests that it's been an extremely important and probably successful feature of our, our sort of tribal psychology. Okay, um, yes, first of all, thank you for a, a very enjoyable lecture. And my question is, um, you've said that culture is in a way adaptive, obviously, that through culture we can adapt, uh, adapt to new environments perhaps more quickly than we would have been able to through um, purely um, genetic biological means. Now, given that, um, I suppose my question is, is within your analysis, what benefits, what, uh, uh, what symbolizes the, the beneficiary of the adaptation? Um, given that there are uh, a number of cultural traits that uh, seem to be maladaptive from a perspective of inclusive fitness for human beings, how do you explain um, the prevalence and the um, perhaps the viral nature of some cultural traits that are very good at spreading but are, aren't necessarily adaptive with regards to human beings in terms of inclusive fitness. Yeah, this is a very, very good question. And could, could you hear it? The gentleman's asking, saying, you know, I'm arguing that culture is adaptive, but there's a lot of maladaptive cultural traits, so is it really adaptive? So first thing I want you to realize is that culture has evolved in this Darwinian way, your minds being the selective agents to promote our genes, and ruthlessly so, 
and there has never been a more powerful force for promoting genes on Earth. Culture is the single most potent trait for converting new lands and resources into more genes the world has ever seen. The humans are far and away the most successful species on Earth. And we can argue about viruses. There's more copies of a virus in your body than there are people on Earth. But we are the species that occupied every habitat on Earth. So culture has been enormously, in a Darwinian sense, um, uh, successful. Now, a lot of culture theorists like to bring up this notion of memes and, oh, religions are a virus of your mind and so on. But what I want you to see is that you have to look so hard to find maladaptive behaviors in culture that the exception really proves the rule, right? That three celibate monks living on top of a mountain in Greece somewhere doesn't negate the fact that culture, by and large, has been successful for our species. So, sure enough, we make mistakes sometimes, right? We do things like we take too many drugs and we die, or we become celibate, and we don't leave any genes. But if culture could really infect our minds and control us rather than us controlling it, and I argue that we control culture and we have played it beautifully in a virtuoso way to our success, if culture could really control us, things like suicide bombing, reckless drug use, promiscuous sexual activity, jumping off of cliffs, all sorts of stuff that acted against our genetic interests would be very, very common in society. And the fact that these things are extraordinarily rare, you think you hear about suicide bombings every day, and you do, but only because of the globalized media. In fact, they're extraordinarily rare. If you were ants or bees or wasps, you would run to the scene of a battle, clamoring to give your life for it. Right? But we don't do that. We're much more circumspect. We're always looking out for our genetic interests. So even though we have the psychology that's a lot like social instincts, you can see that we've departed from that. So I'm not one of these mimeticists who thinks that we're controlled. And I don't think religion is a virus of the mind. I actually think we have shaped re religion and God, I'm sorry, this might offend somebody, in our image, not the other way around. We have used religion in the most virtuoso way to advance our genetic interests around the world. You might not like it, it's nasty when you kill people, but Darwinian evolution isn't about being nice, it's about reproductive success. So this isn't me advocating these things, it's not nice when one religious group trounces another, but they're not trouncing them because of their religion, they're trouncing them because that's what we've always done throughout our past, and they're merely using religion to enhance their group cohesion and their coordination as a group. Religion is one very clear way of advertising what group you belong to. So I've got a very different view from a lot of people on this mimetic stuff. I hope that's answered your question. Yeah. Uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, you passed very quickly from learning to learning and wanting to improve, but they're not the same thing. And you uh, appear to be assuming that you can only have them together. Whereas we all know there have been societies where there has certainly been learning from previous experience, but not necessarily the desire to improve. Do you, what do you see as the reasons for the transitions or the differences between these? And another thing, I, I really couldn't help observing all of your examples of tribal behavior and your Sainsbury's murderer, and indeed a lot of your assertions are very much from one half of the human race. <laughs> 
What was the first question that we don't always get it right? You don't always have learning and uh, wanting to improve together. You can learn yeah. from previous generations. Yeah. Improve, yeah. The, so the latest question is, is really a good one. Um, learning doesn't always work. Um, learning is really, really, really hard. It's really hard. Really hard. Now, I said that the capacity for culture evolved maybe 160,000 years ago, and it took 80, maybe 100,000 years before we worked up the kind of cultural wisdom and knowledge to get out of Africa and inhabit the rest of the world. Learning is hard. It's sort of two steps forward and, you know, 1.99 steps back. And, and yet, the long-term trend has clearly been one of cumulative cultural adaptation. We know that learning is hard because when societies get isolated and splintered and they live at low population densities, they typically lose a lot of their wisdom and technology and, and skills. So. Um, Yes, I take that point completely, and it just shows you how hard it is and how extraordinary it is that we, we have this capability and other animals don't. Now, I think the other one was a, was a dig at men. Um, uh, the thing about half the human race, yeah, I suppose we, we might be the nastier of the two sexes, but I wouldn't put it beyond women to look out for their own interests as well. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that, because I, <laughs> I, I think it could be venturing into nasty territory. Uh, you said that um, we don't have a clue which brain structure is responsible for imitation. I was wondering if um, you dismissed the idea of mirror neurons playing that role, or if you have an opinion on it. Yeah, yeah, the gentleman, uh, mirror neurons are meant to be these neurons that fire in your brain. If I watch you doing ballet, I'm meant to have some neurons that fire in my brain, and those neurons are meant to be sort of saying to my body, that's how you do it, because they're the same neurons that fire than when I actually do that behavior. Um, gentlemen might know much more about neurons, uh, motor neurons, than I do. They've been hugely controversial. Um, the, the person who first mooted their existence, the work has been extremely difficult to replicate, these motor neurons. And e even if they do exist, um, we're just saying, oh, okay, there's a neuron that fires when we, um, when we watch somebody do something, but it doesn't really tell us much more than that. So I, I'm totally in favor of this line of research, and I hope somebody can dig out motor neurons for everything. But at the moment, it, it isn't an answer, but it's a, it's a tantalizing clue. If there are two very quick questions, then we can take those. There's one right at that there. Anybody else for a last question? One over there. But could you be brief in asking the question, please? Very quickly. Um, how do Perfect. outsiders and eccentrics? Sorry. How do outsiders and eccentrics fit into the picture that you're painting? Challenges to groups, I suppose. First of all, let me apologize. Uh, Helena was scolding you for asking questions uh, that were too long-winded. It's my answers that are no, too long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, how do we deal with eccentrics and outsiders? Well, I, I, again, I, I don't want to give a glib answer to this, but I, I think the whole idea of, of, of outsiderness and eccentricity, what, what it is is it, it's showing that we are constantly looking for clues about people that tell us we can trust them. And that's why it is so important to walk around holding doors for people and giving up seats on trains and so on, because you're constantly saying, 
I'm someone you can trust with this cooperative society. I'm someone that isn't going to run off with your best ideas. I'm not going to turn around and stab you in the back. And so we don't deal with eccentrics and outsiders very well because I think we're worried that they might be the sort of people that don't share our values and so on. But that's, that's a rather glib answer, and I don't think it's a very insightful one. You might have something much deeper in mind that I think we're going to have to take up later on. Yeah. And there was a question there. Sorry, well, my question, was, um, my question was sort of along the same lines. What do people, say, of different races, sexuality, self-expressions do when, when you come up against that sort of knee-jerk moral reaction? Um, is there a way to sort of protect yourself without trying to assimilate? Or do people who differ from the norms, it, what, what can we do? Well, it, it, it's a really fraught process, isn't it? Um, and and um, we, we all know and we recognize in each other that, that, that there are all these little divisional boundaries from, from language and culture and sexuality and you name it, political affiliations and so on. And what can we do about it? And I, I, w w the, the point I've been trying to make is that our... Th so there's no simple answer. We know we often go backwards. We know we often treat people crudely and violently when they fall outside of our boundaries. But if we can get any optimism from this, it is we have this psychology that I cannot emphasize too much how important it's been, that we are capable of cooperating with people who are unrelated to us because coordinated group activity has been our species' sort of secret strategy. And so the, the long-term process of societies becoming more and more tolerant is one of people realizing that they can actually achieve more in, in a historical long-term trend sense from cooperation than from conflict. And so conflict is this sort of endless cycles of betrayal and revenge. And you, 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 you expend so much on defense, in, in you know, defending your little patch, that if you could lay down your arms and cooperate, you could then turn those energies to prosperity and productivity. And that's a very glib way of putting it, but our, our sort of 80,000 year history has been one of doing exactly that. And I, I mean, I really think that you know that that we we can be hopeful <laughs> that, that 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 can continue, but it, it's not easy. It's certainly not easy. To all those disappointed people who, all right, one more then, one more, very quickly. I'm hoping that spot there is right. Twenty-three minutes past. That's just a quick one. Um, how does the scaling of our psychology relate to the scaling or the scalability of language? So if you say um, each tribe speaks, speaks its own language and now obviously the internet is mostly an Anglo-dominated sphere. How do these things interrelate? Yeah, what's going what's to happen to language? Yeah, no, I have a very unpopular view about this. Um, you, you watch my TED talk about this. That's a, that's a naked plug to watch my TED. But you might enjoy it, and you'll get a longer answer than I'm going to give you right now. Um, the, so uh, there, there, there's absolutely conflicting views of what the Internet's going to do. It, 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 English is going to be overrun by all these other dialects and so on. Um, in fact, I think the long-term history of language evolution is that we are moving inexorably towards fewer and fewer and fewer languages, and that, and that in the long term, the very, very long term, there will be one language on Earth. And that's because all languages are equally good technologies for communicating. So just as there's now one operating system, thankfully Macintosh, that's coming to dominate all operating systems, <laughs> 
just as there's one way of telling time, there's one way of dividing up the year into months and weeks and days, and so 24 hours is totally arbitrary, but there's one way of doing that. Whenever there's equally good technologies competing for our minds, one of them comes to dominate, and that will happen with languages. At the moment, you won't like this if English isn't your native language, it looks like it's going to be English or some variant of it, simply because English is by far not, not the, the most commonly spoken language on earth. It's like third or fourth. But everybody's second language is English. And the internet is the, on the internet, English is the language everybody uses to communicate. So that's, that's the potted um, summary. And there may be lots of hisses and boos because I'm an English speaker, but it's just the way it is, I'm afraid. <laughs> in English or whatever else you can manage, you, could, you can actually continue to talk to Mark outside because um, copies of his book, Wild for Culture, are being sold out there and Mark's very kindly agreed to sit and sign books and you can accost him with your questions when he does that. And there'll be a queue system organized. The school is very good at organizing those queues. <laughs> Um, I'd like to thank all of you very, very much on a, early on a Saturday morning for coming to this event and for being so very engaged. It's been absolutely marvellous to have such an audience. And Mark, thank you again for an outstanding lecture. My pleasure. Thank you.